0: Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, uh, which is a uh, subsidiary of the RamJack Corporation and the Shineheart Wig Company, but also thedispatch.com, where you can sign up for the G File, for David French's newsletter, for the Morning Dispatch, and um, all sorts of others. Floor, all sorts of other floor waxes and dessert toppings. Um, today's episode is brought to you by none other than ZipRecruiter, Ernest and DoorDash. Look at that, Yowza, three uh, sponsors this week. Um, We'll hear more about them in a little bit, but here's what I wanted to do today. There's this guy who wrote this really interesting piece for national affairs, and Yuval Levin, who's basically the Jewish Yoda of of what's left of the American right, um, spoke extremely highly of him, and so I read the piece, and, and I was really intrigued by it and I wrote a G file about it and I've wanted to just sort of do a political theory palooza thing. And, um, one of the reasons why I wanted to do it today was that, uh, I'm kind of sick of talking about Trump and the rank punditry stuff. So that we're going to do is a Trump, largely Trump free episode. I can't promise that the phrase Trump card or whatever might cut, sneak in at some point, but this is, uh, this is pure, stick it right in my veins uh wonk fest stuff and if you want to go re- hear about the impeachment things and all of that there are plenty of podcasts out there for you this week i am sure so daniel burns welcome to the remnant podcast great to have you
1: thanks so much for having me Jonah.
0: um so you are a university of dallas political scientist
1: correct yeah i uh, ten- got tenure last year and i'm I, uh, had a sabbatical last year at Catholic U and managed to extend my stay in D.C. by a year. I'm on unpaid leave for government service right now.
0: And um, so you made it through the final trial of com- by combat for, it's, for tenure. That's it was, it's great. It was uh, as, as a little blood spilled as could be managed. Um, so, uh, and your specialty is... Political, the history of political thought. Okay. Uh,
1: I mostly do, I mean, I, my doctoral dissertation was on St. Augustine's political thought, but I've written on Locke, Thomas More, Thomas uh, More. I'm working on a book that sort of uses Joseph Ratzinger's uh, critique of secularism as a frame to talk about stuff from Cicero through the American founding and and uh, contemporary controversies on the role of religion in public life. Religion and politics is my sort of my central interest.
0: Okay. So um, to start with, why don't we start where um, I sort of made my introduction to you, which was on this, uh, this point that you make in, I think it's still the current issue of national affairs about the difference between... Liberal theory and applied liberalism, or however you put it, um, when you just sort of, for the layman who's interested in the stuff but may not
1: be completely up on the lingo, why don't you give a yeah, yeah. sort of broad? I mean, basically, and I'm especially excited to get to talk to you about it because, um, it, to be honest, your book was one of the. I was very gratified that that you uh, liked the piece because your book was one of the things I thought. Uh, I was at least partly disagreeing with, so uh-huh. I want to find out that's whether fine. that's whether that's true or not uh, by talking to you about it. Uh, but basically, I was I was hearing a lot of debates, and you know, as a professional political theorist, I'm always very happy when people start talking about political philosophy in D.C. and uh-huh. anywhere else. It makes you know, pays the bills and so on. You know, people were talking about liberalism, whether we have a post liberal left, whether we should have a post liberal right, whether we should like liberalism. Patrick Deneen's book is probably the most the most um, successful of the, these intellectual critiques of liberalism. Yuram Hazoni has raised related questions. You know, there are others, there are articles and so on. And, and I just felt like th- the people were largely talking past each other mm-hmm. uh, because it seemed like a lot of people, y- y- you're one, Bill Golson is another, there are lots of people who, who put out, you know, and there were, I think it felt like entire issues of foreign affairs devoted to this. People People who want to defend some version of the liberal order, whether it's a left or right liberalism, mostly point to just how... How good we have it in practice, empirically. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how well liberalism, liberal practice, as I call it, uh, has been working out for our country, um, and I have an awful lot of sympathy for that. And then we have other people who, uh, the critics of liberalism, and, I, and I'm you know as a as a conservative myself, I'm I'm mainly focusing on uh, the critiques of liberalism from the right, although there yeah. are interesting ones on the left as well, obviously. But let's let's focus on the ones on the right. Uh, they mostly start with a th- with a, a set of ideas that exist on paper. They they talk about the state of nature teaching, they talk about Locke or Hobbes or or, or Bacon or whoever you know various mm, versions mm, of it, bacon. or 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 or, or Occam, or you know there's there's different yeah. uh, uh, different versions of the story. But uh, they talk about these theories, and then they point to things that that aren't good about our practice. And everything they list that's not good about our practice, I more or less agree with. And then they say that there's a causal link between these these ideas on the page and and practice, and that and that always it seems to me, oh sorry, so 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 they make what I think is a false uh, a false equation of liberal practice with liberal theory. Mm-hmm. But then the defenders of of liberal... l- l- before you... yeah sure. Uh, first of all, let's ex- just explain what
0: you mean. First of all, liberalism at this point, our readers should know that we're not talking about progressivism; right, we're right. talking about classical liberalism and yep. limited government, ideas of Locke, the founding, blah 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 blah. But when you say liberal practice, what do you mean by liberal practice as opposed to liberal theory?
1: Yeah. So I, by liberal practice, I just mean the way countries actually work that we really like living in that and that every liberal theorist has basically begun by saying, you readers of my book, you, you like the kinds of countries you live in. You know, the first sentence of Locke's treatises is we've just had this great revolution. I'm going to explain to you why it was a good – I'm going to explain to you why – as Englishmen already sense, it was a good idea. I'm mm-hmm. going to deduce it from first first principles, basically. He doesn't put it that way. Um, Rawls, in a different way, you know, various people. They they all start with people's lived experience of these countries. And so I, I don't... There's no formulaic definition for these countries, but we, we all know them when we see them. Uh, the UK and U, the US are the two most prominent, but at this point, obviously, France, Germany, uh, Israel, but a whole bunch of others. And, and then others, you know, sort of... Liberal right? democracies. Liberal democracies. When we talk
0: about liberal democracy... Um, I mean, just just to, to clarify, um, when we talk about so the, here's the way I see it: we're talking about liberal theory, we're talking about deductive reasoning from first principles, the kind of stuff that makes Yoram Hosoni wanna set his hair on fire, right? <laughs> yes, um, rational that you know all men are created equal, therefore blah 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 blah. It's an argument from from logic and first principles is is liberal theory and liberal practice. It's just basically how people in free, what we would call free countries, live. Exactly. Right. right. And with their customs, their institutions, um, the rule of law, with its quirky, weird, idiosyncratic, localized variations and all. Yep. the rest. I mean, they still got a lot of Napoleonic code out there, which is not particularly liberal, if you ask me. But
1: they uh, make it work. Uh, right. Right. And it's much better than the the bits of Napoleonic code they still have in Egypt. in Egyptian law, for example. Right. I and mean, it's, right. it's, in it's in its proper context. No. And, and, and as you say, it looks. It looks. You know, German liberalism and French liberalism have have pretty you know pretty different views on what separation of church and state means right um but in the range of human of human societies they're fairly close together
0: right. when you, you get off a plane they're. in all these places the languages are different the food is different but you still feel like
1: you're in a free place you are in a free place right. you are in a, and I and I insist on this you are in a free place by the only reasonable standard which is comparison to other countries right you are not in a, there is no such thing as a perfectly free society but if you're if you're looking comparatively as you should be these are free societies objectively right okay. and so and then, so you know, the people who like living in those societies have a tendency to to recur to books like Locke's Second Treatise, but also others. Uh, I would add Mill's On Liberty, which I think is a difference between me and Hazoni. He likes Mill more; he thinks Mill is more sympathetic to conservatism than I do. But they, you know, in some cases, rolls That tends to be people more on the left. But they recur to these books as a way of describing what it is that they like about about uh, free societies. And, you know there 's great wisdom in in contained in those books. I think everyone should read them. I teach them for a living i 'm not trying to put myself out of a job but i don 't think that they really describe I think they fail to describe a lot of what we actually like mm-hmm. about liberalism and even more than that, I think that they push us if we were if we were to say the solution to our problems is to follow more strictly you know what Locke told us to do or what Mill told us to do or what or Kant or whoever it is. I think that would actually push us in an unhelpful direction. I mm. think that... And I, I came to this idea by studying religious freedom, um, the sort of what I think see as the compromise of the founding. I don't think there is a set of coherent philosophical principles that can that can that can get you to what we Americans have always recognized as religious freedom. There are conflicting sets of philosophical principles, and what we have is a wonderful arrangement that allows a whole bunch of people with a range of different conflicting set of philosophical and religious principles to get along and to and to, and to um, cooperate as citizens of a free and and uh, flourishing republic uh, and I think we should keep doing that and I think there are there are books that give you guidance as to how to do that, and I think that they're especially the ancients. Um, but also, you know, there are there are liberal thinkers like Tocque and, Tocqueville and Burke, uh, who I don't see as as following this kind of deductive model, uh, and who are, you know, who are awesome and who I can't say enough right. about. Right? No, I, I, what is two thumbs and likes the Tocqueville and Burke? <laughs> this, this guy, <laughs> okay. Um
0: But okay, so without any concern for my feelings, because believe me, I can handle. No, that. I, I, uh, I know that you can. John. <laughs> uh, uh, where is it you think I disagree with
1: all of that in 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 in, in Suicide of the West? Uh, I guess I thought a couple things. Well, first of all, I mean, uh, of course, it's, the book is missing half, as as I know. As, uh-huh. as was Locke's treat, we're Locke's treated, apparently. <laughs> so it's, yeah. we, uh, we'll never know Locke's. And in, 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 in case of yours, I can just ask you what was there. You know, you, in what you call the miracle. Uh, you're, you focus in, almost entirely on economic prosperity and the mm-hmm. things that that are associated with economic prosperity. And to me, I mean, that's why I closed with that quote from Tocqueville. What we admire about free countries it includes their economic prosperity. Yeah. But I think as Tocqueville says, if if you only like freedom because it makes you richer, sooner or later, you'll sell out your freedom for for economic well-being right. because it is in fact, there are plenty of cases empirically when less political freedom would at least in the short and maybe even medium term get you more prosperity. and And I also, you know, my concern is about it. So I didn't emphasize economic prosperity as what makes... Economic freedom is certainly part of what makes liberal practice, but I didn't have economics prosperity. Uh, first of all, because you know, I think as China shows, mm-hmm. uh, it's you can make huge advances in economic prosperity at the price of political freedom, mm-hmm. uh, and you know they they're still going. Uh, they, they've, I,
0: as I, I although I, I would argue that there was not exactly when Deng Xiaoping, because you hear this a lot, you know, and I and I I, I take your point because it was also true. Under for a while under Stalin that you actually did have massive growth rates in the Soviet Union because it turns out that the transition from ox-pulled plows to heavy equipment tractors, you're going to get a lot of productivity benefit, right? But I wouldn't argue I, – I wouldn't concede that there was a um, diminution of freedom, political freedom or any other kind of freedom from – Pre Deng Xiaoping to post Deng Xiaoping, right? I mean, like it was a, it was an authoritarian or totalitarian country and dirt poor, and then it became an authoritarian or totalitarian country yeah, and right. richer, and there were more freedoms that came with that. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Chinese state is doing all the facial recognition stuff is they understand that with economic liberalization, political liberalization is always sort of lurking behind the scenes. Yes, but I anyway, know that's a digression. We can come back to that. Uh, l- l- let me. L- I'll let you finish your your grotesquely unfair diet. <laughs> <Okay. laughs>
1: right. um, well, let's stick on the tsar for a second. I mean, it was. I don't. You know. I'm sure you know more about the tsar than I do. Uh, is it the case that the tsar? I know. Mean, I know he had a secret police and so on. Weren't they significantly less developed than Stalin's? I mean, is it not the case that the, a real price in political freedom was paid, even relative to the very illiberal reign of, or relatively illiberal reign of, of Nicholas? Yeah. Okay. I, I, I'm,
0: I'm not trying to say that. Well, I wasn't thinking about with the Czar, but I, I, first of all I mean Russia didn't get richer in a meaningful sense until a little later I mean the uh, the tr- the transition from I mean I'm trying to remember I used to be obsessed with this stuff uh the transition from the Czar to the Bolshevik reign was an economic catastrophe for Russia although you know honest Bolsheviks would say that had a lot to do with the Russian Civil War, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) But there came a point in the early 1920s under the new economic policy where like Bukharin, um, they actually, they were hitting starvation level food shortages and and Bukharin, and I think Lenin was still in power, they allowed for peasants to hold back 10% of what they grew for themselves and sell it themselves. And that increased productivity wildly. But yeah, your point about the political freedom thing I was thinking just in the case of China that it was – it's not obvious to me that what Deng Xiaoping did was tighten the political repression rather than loosen it that opened up market liberalization because you can't have market liberalization without some more – with some, without some loosening of free expression, maybe yes. not on politics, yes. but
1: you have to be honest about your business yes. transactions and contracts and all that kind. No, of No, these things are are, are tied together in, in 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 reality. Although although of course you can you can try to offset that by even more, I mean, and this seems to be the direction she is moving in, even more repressive means of social control than than technology permitted thirty years ago. That's absolutely true. I mean, this, uh, this is terrifying. Thing. This is my
0: argument for years with the techno libertarians who say technology is always on the side of freedom, and my argument is you're absolutely right except for all the times when it isn't <laughs> because it turns out that you know the, when George Orwell wrote 1984 it seemed obvious to everybody that technology was on the side of authoritarianism and for about 40 years people were like haha orwell was wrong and then all of a sudden it turns out with ai and some other things it can be on the side technology definitely helps the north korean state keep their people in a gulag and so it all depends on how much political will you can rally around and how you use technology but it's it's entirely possible that in the long run technology is always on the side of freedom but for what can seem like a really long medium run like someone's lifespan right. it's on the other side right, of things right, right, you know
1: right, okay uh, good so i guess i guess my so my two the two points about your book that i thought that i might disagree with I like, you know pending pending correction uh, Enough, it's truly I'm fine. <laughs> no, no, i sorry. Um I know. So the emphasis on economics and I, and I just add to that, you know, the, with the 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 problem right now I think with the emphasis on economics is and and you you do say this in the book if I remember right. But, um but the problem with the emphasis on economics is that it's just that man doesn't live by bread alone. Right. I mean and and you can actually be richer and unhappier and more lonely and you can have a population that you know, larger and larger percentage of with percentages of which need prescription antidepressants just to get through the day uh, mm-hmm. and and I have nothing against that for people who need it by the way but I just it's it's not a sign of a health of a, uh, it's a, it's a sign that something is unhealthy mm-hmm. about the society the family breakdown you obviously talk about a lot so um the and then you know we can get into the question of whether the the miracle is somehow necessarily tied to these things but mm-hmm. and I, I don't think it, I don't think it necessarily is but um but I do think that that it's uh that the, the critics of liberalism to the to the extent that uh to the extent that they're saying i mean the critics of the critics of liberalism on the right mm-hmm. are not do not hesitate to say yes we're much richer you know for the most part some of them you know there, there are these debates about you know whether whether um median income has flatlined or whether it's gone up a little bit in the past 40 years right. but whatever everybody knows that even 40 years ago it was way 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 higher than 100 years earlier than right. that. so like right. these are not these are not the, the biggest like you can't you can't say liberalism has failed because maybe earners are only making as much as they were in the 70s like that's 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 not an issue but you can say uh, that, that maybe liberalism has failed which I don't think it has but you know the argument that it has because even though we're richer we've lost more of what makes life actually worth living that I think is a serious is a serious concern and that so that's you know, I was trying to impart, I, w- I was trying to avoid having that thrown back at me by, by not, by barely even touching the, mm-hmm. the, the economic question. Okay. So, yeah, go ahead. Well, first of all,
0: on the economic question, I think the one thing we can all agree on is that it's very difficult to thrive in this economy if you don't hire the right people. And that's why I want to talk about ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura's COO, Dylan Miskowitz, needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company. But he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for business of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free. At ziprecruiter.com slash dingo. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash D I N G O. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Um Okay, so uh first of all, I did not know, we did not discuss at all that we were gonna be talking about my book when we oh. talked about having you on, so I'm I'm happy to do it though, because it's it's rare I get to anymore. Um so I think I say it in the book, I know I say it in speeches all the time, that one of the reasons why I focused on the economic stuff was that I am, and I, long-time listeners of this podcast know this spiel from me, I I somewhat dismay about, I'm somewhat dismayed about what's happened on the right and how, and I'm perfectly willing to take my share of blame for my role and all of that over the last 25 years, but... So much of the right is just given up on the idea that they need to persuade anybody, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's all owning the libs. Their tears are delicious stuff. Um,
1: Although not AEI.
0: Not AEI, absolutely. Um, not as far as I know a
1: single person that AEI. It's a wonderful thing.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think even with my newfound epiphany, I am still the most own the libs. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, But the point i was trying to make is that um, – one of the things I wanted to do with the book is, look, I've, I've, I've doled out red meat plenty in my life. And what I wanted to do First was... First attract me to your writing in college. <laughs> um, is I wanted to, uh, model the behavior that I think is lacking on the right. And so it's funny. If I was writing this book, if I were writing the book again, I would, let's say I was, if I was, if it was scheduled to come out in 2019 or 2020 instead of 2018, I would have taken dead aim at, at Patrick Deneen, Deneen and Yoram Hazoni and a lot of those guys. But a lot of those guys were working on the same schedule I was. And their books came out around <laughs> exactly. the same time mine did. And so I couldn't really anticipate what they were doing. Right. I mean, so I, I criticized the alt-right, but I didn't, you know, and, and Patrick Denine by no means is a member of the alt-right. Right. But there was this other more serious threat to my understanding of what conservatism is supposed to be about. It still is. And, yeah, and, and I would have been more directly aiming at them. What I was actually trying to do was persuade people to the left of me. Right. And... So one of the things I always I always say in speeches at least is when I'm talking about this question is when you talk to a progressive or a liberal, whatever you want to call them, and you ask them, why do you have the political views that you have? Why do you have this understanding of what you think government should do? What is it that you think the state should be involved in? And they list a bunch of stuff, uh, uh, you know, um, fighting poverty increasing literacy increasing public health protecting the environment um, education all these all of these things right and my argument is is that liberal democratic capitalism the miracle whatever you want to call it is better at at, at ameliorating or improving that stuff right. than the politics that they the, the public policies that they pursue it's it's there's some where it's close. I mean, like environmentalism, you can make an argument one way or the other. The socialist and communist record on the environment's much worse than yes. the capitalist, but capitalism did a lot of bad stuff to get rich enough yep. to start caring about the environment. So that's we can we can debate that. One. The only one where it's like obviously the case that capitalism is worse than socialism or statism or all these kinds of things is income inequality, and. Yeah. A subject about which I struggle to care very much, and I get it as a political problem because of the way our brains are wired. But I, I as a as a moral issue, the idea that if the poorest people are millionaires and the richest people are trillionaires, yeah. who gives a rat's ass? And um, or at least why is that so morally stressful? And I'm happy to talk about income inequality, but the my point is is that what I was trying to do was, you know, that's why the first sentence of the book is there's no God in this book, is because what I'm trying to do is appeal to people on their, on the left, on their own basically materialist terms. Right. And so, if I were writing the book aiming at, you know, Patrick and Hezoni and those guys, would I have emphasized the economic stuff as much? Maybe not. You know, I um, still would emphasize. I mean, I think this is a glaring oversight in 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 Patrick Deneen's book. I mean, it is astounding to me that um, declines in infant mortality, declines uh, it, it increases in longevity, um, just the f- literally the physical well being of humanity, yeah. and the the fact that it is not. You know, even a hundred years ago, it was totally normal to know what it was like to have to, ha- to have a child die on yeah, you. Right. And for a pro-life Catholic to just basically wave his hands at all of that um, in favor of the, you know the rich meaningfulness of women staying home and churning butter. Um, and I'm being a little unfair, but the, little. but he, but look, I, I like Patrick a lot right. and, and his is the best book on that front. But he just ha- – there are these amazing lacunae there where he just skips inconvenient things. The one place where he talks about the liberation of women in the book is – he sounds outright Marxist and he says, you know, people call this liberation and in, sen- in one sense it's good because we want women to be blah, 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 blah. But on the other sense, all they're doing is being liberated to be cogs in the same techno-capitalist power structure, yada, yada, yada. I honestly think that's a bad argument, um, and uh, and it denies a certain amount of moral agency. I mean, the just the if you're gonna if you're if you're gonna do what Patrick does or what Hozoni to a certain extent does and take dead aim at the Enlightenment, the American Founding, all of that kind of stuff. And not at least go way out of your way to concede. Well, you know, freeing of the slaves was pretty good, <laughs> right? And the civil rights movement was pretty good. And women's liberation. Yeah, there were some ba- downsides for the, for family structure and family, you know, solidity. But on the other hand, there's a lot that's good about that. You have to me, you have to check those boxes. Otherwise, you're basically saying that they weren't meaningful successes or advances for the human condition. And and so anyway, I would have addressed all of that kind of stuff. And I agree, man does, you know, man doesn't live by bread alone. And I, at this point I have a hard time remembering what remained in the book and what was cut out of it, but I had I remember at some point I wrote this big long thing about how the phrase homo econo, homo yes, economicus right. nice. yeah was always a slander. It, was, like, it right. was a straw man from the beginning. Adam Smith never believed that not. we were irreducible economic cogs, and and I don't either. Um So anyway, let me um before we do that, you know, that seems like a worthwhile place to bring up uh, Ernest. A little financial relief goes a long way. Student loan financing with Ernest can help you pick a monthly payment that fits your budget so you can breathe easy today. If you're still paying the same rate you were when you graduated, odds are you could reduce your monthly payment and save big. Even if you have refinanced before, with today's low rate, environment most people can save by refinancing again earnest is the easiest way to refinance your student loans saving you time and money checking your new rate is easy and fast to start complete a few questions online it only takes about two minutes and you'll get a personalized rate estimate all without affecting your credit score if you qualify earnest offers customizable loan terms and no fees you can even combine private and federal loans Imagine having one single monthly payment with one low rate. Already refinanced the loan? No problem. You can still be eligible to lower your interest rate today again. Plus, the internet loves earnest customer service. They're rated 9.4 out of 10 on Trustpilot, so you'll always get the support you need. So, start saving today. Our listeners get a $100 cash bonus when you refinance a student loan at earnest.com slash dingo. That's E-A-R-N-E-S-T dot com slash dingo. That's a $100 cash bonus when you refinance a student loan at earnest.com slash dingo. Go to earnest.com slash dingo today. Terms and conditions apply. So let me remember why I like your article, okay, and why I thought it was actually very complimentary, with a E, not an I uh, yeah, yeah. um to uh, my book and my thesis and why there are a bunch of things when I read them these days, I I let loose a very slow, loud F bomb <laughs> because I was like, why didn't I read this when I was still working on the okay. book? Right? And I think that this difference but like one of the points you make in the article, which I really recommend people read, is that the way almost every liberal democratic country in the yep. world lives cannot really be reconciled with, like, Locke, right? Uh, like The Electoral College is an abomination for Lockean thinking, right? And, and federalism, even more importantly. Right, and federalism as well, this idea that we're going to diffuse up power and that the whole of the community doesn't make all of this, isn't completely sovereign in every regard. Um, there are all of these things that as conservatives, or I don't want to speak for you, but as a conservative, are absolutely essential to a functioning country, right? Absolutely. But they are not central to Locke. And are they not reconcilable in, in Locke's political theory? And, um, and so part of the point I try to make in the book was that in a Hayekian sense, a lot of the things that we associate from liberalism start as cultural yes, right. institutions... And it's only pretty late in the process that the eggheads sit down and slap on a coat of paint that is this intellectual rationalization or the first principle stuff, yeah. right? And so, you know, the example I often I use in the book, and I often use uh, when I explain this to people is, you know, one of the reasons we get liberalism is because the English were just weird, yep. and so yeah, in in se- by seventh century or something. They had this rule that the big man or the king or the duke couldn't enter your house without good reason, right? That's where we get castle. every man, each man's, every man's home is his castle. That that works its way into the common law, into Blackstone, and all
1: this kind of stuff. It becomes, as you, as you point out, it right. It's 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 what's weird is that they held on to these these rights that a lot of other or the other right. barbarian tribes and, had, and, but lost.
0: And it has to do with just a whole bunch of weird things about England, right? And Scepter to Isle, and. and over time this becomes more refined and more refined as an intellectual proposition until it basically becomes the 4th amendment. Yeah. And you can do the same thing with sort of like, you know, Locke's notes on toleration was like, "Oh, we need to recognize everybody's different and we have all these un- wonderful, you know, different perspectives and we have to have tolerance for our fellow men who worship differently, but not the Catholics." <laughs> and and then when Jefferson does his notes on toleration or whatever that's called uh, in Virginia, He's like, not only do we have to recognize and honor Catholics, but Hindus, Buddhists, pagans, Vikings, Jews, whatever. It's this purification or refinement of what is a cultural norm into an intellectual or legal norm. And the causality is backwards. And one of the things I liked about your piece was how that's still the case, right? That, That... the way people live is liberalism too. Cultural institutions right. are actually more important to how people actually live and organize their lives than the political theory. I like the political theory. I hope you do because otherwise you pick the wrong freaking profession. <laughs> but um, but it's often the lagging indicator rather than the leading indicator.
1: It is, c what, but what concerns me most, and 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 you know, I, I I'd be curious to hear why you, why I mean, you say you 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 go around and and. Uh, have to do the sort of Locke versus Rousseau uh-huh. thing for college students all the time. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't mind using using these two these two men's names as placeholders for all sorts of things. They're avatars, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, but I am interested in why why it seems to you so important to to emphasize Locke in that way. Because, and you know, obviously he was important to the founders. As you say, as you say in the book, lots of people were important to the founders, and. Who was it who said their minds were a, a museum and a miscellany? Uh, describing the founders, they, they, you know, they oh, they right. drew from all sorts of yeah. all sorts of sources, and many of which contradict each other. Which is fine for political practice, in the mm-hmm. way is what I wanted to emphasize. And again, I came to it first by noticing how we do religious freedom in this country, which I think is not is not reconcilable with Locke's letter concerning toleration. It's not reconcilable uh, with any, I think, you know, strict coherent theory. Locke. Um, Locke does not acknowledge the rights of conscience. He explicitly denies the rights of conscience. He says conscience is the private opinion of an individual, which has no standing and does not deserve toleration. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what you what you have the right to is to have the government that's if this is for Locke now you know the, a government that's not interested in your religious beliefs qua religious beliefs in religious ceremony qua religious ceremony. If you want to sacrifice a goat to Zeus, it's as long as it's your goat, you can kill a goat, right? Mm-hmm. Unless unless you're violating animal cruelty laws, or a, as in a, which we you know we had a case about that, of course, in the nineties. As long as, you know, there's not some sort of goat shortage that has required the government to put emergency measures in place to prevent the slaughter of goats, you know, whatever it is. But if one of those generally applicable laws does interfere with your religious observance for Locke, you have zero right whatsoever to any kind of exemption from it, Mm -hmm. which is not how we've done things in this country, right? right? we've, you know, sometimes we've been... Harder on certain religious practices, polygamy especially uh, other times we've been more accommodating in the case of people like the Quakers, we've gone back and forth in the case of the Catholics we've, we've we've had different stands at different times. but the idea that there is something somehow sacred about an individual's relationship to the divine that requires us to how, how did Washington put it uh, that, that means that that ought ought to be respected. It's in the letter to the Quakers. Mm-hmm. the conscientious scruples of every man ought to be something like accorded the utmost deference. As long as the essential nation, interests right. of the nation permit, right? It's not, it's not an absolute right, but it's a, it's a respect that we have. That so that's an example. Federalism is an, is an example. I mean, I could give other. I think in the article I give a few examples. There's lots of things about the way we do things, and that, as you say, conservatives are rightly attached to. That I think, if one begins to say to defend our principles, we have to make sure we stick to the strict, you know, whether it's Lockean or some other version of liberal way of doing things. We end up. I think we end up cutting ourselves off at the knees because you're, you're going to end up you're going to end up with a view, for example, of religious of of government neutrality on religious questions, which was unthinkable prior to to uh, Hugo Black's resuscitation of the wall metaphor in 1947 mm-hmm. in Everson, and that we still haven't done, even despite the Warren Court's uh, I would say assault on uh, on the kind of you know uh, mushy. Semi quasi establishment of semi quasi Protestant, semi quasi deist, uh, something that was certainly not uh, the, the strict neutrality called for by either Locke or Rawls, uh, and the, and you know whether it's family law, uh, which i not you know morals legislation, these are things that you know I don't I don't think any of these things can be resuscitated in the form that they existed seventy years ago because our culture has changed very much you mm-hmm. deal with that I think the best treatment of that is still Yuval's chapter in Fractured Republic on mm-hmm. uh, on, on uh, the culture war stuff but the idea that we that um that we need to that, that what what conservatives need or that what our country needs right now is some sort of stricter adherence to theories that I just think don't do justice to what we like most about our practice that's what worries me and that's what I really wrote the article to yeah, uh, push back against so
0: i'm very torn about this um i'll just be honest um i agree with you on the descriptive retrospective stuff right i mean i always remember irving Kristol used to say that he was talking about how this country practiced uh theological diversity but moral unanimity and his example was always how the mormons utah could never become a state so long as they had polygamy and the second that the Mormons said, all right, we'll give up polygamy. Everyone's like, all right, give me a state. We don't really care what you think. Right. We care what you do, right? And I think that that old consensus is breaking down for all the reasons that you've all mentioned so that we both probably agree on and all the rest. On the flip side, we I mean, we should give away the spoiler at the end. Part of your argument is that we need to revert to statesmanship, right? Which is this, you know, which which has my Straussian spider sense tingling all over the place. <laughs> but we can get to that. I think that rhetoric really, really matters and not just from statesmen, from everybody. And rhetoric, you know, there's this quote I always use from this guy, Wayne. I can't remember his name. He's a Wayne Booth. Yeah. Uh, Thank you, Jack. Um, About rhetoric is the art by which we describe the things we're supposed to care about most or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's impossible to use good rhetoric without consultation to ideals. Right, And whether those ideals are... F- saying that we shouldn't be resorting to political theory, I get that if you're talking about the metaphysics of it at all. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking about the ideals that are sort of embedded in the common canon of American political culture... Yeah. You need to have those ideals. Yeah, no, and, and my article is, one of the big weaknesses of my article is not talking enough about those. Um, really true. Right, so it, that's my only point, is that it, it depends what you mean about, like, not really, because if you don't have some conception of political theory to rely on, you really don't have any conception of what the ideal direction for the country should be. Yes. Right. And so you need to have some set of principles that you can evoke that, garner buy in sympathy whatever you want from the public at large and i and so that's why i i think political theory for want of a better term still really matters because otherwise it's we're going to descend into philosophical pragmatism and right. okay. that way lies you know that's where the morlocks and the mole people live that's yeah yeah not, no
1: not good so bad. so what would i say about this i guess so the, the works of political theory that I most pointed to are either works, uh, you know, in the case of Tocqueville, there are works about a particular political community, uh, the old regime and the revolution and democracy in America, where he explicitly says, you know, I'm in democracy in America, I am not saying American institutions should simply be copied in France, uh, but I'm trying to understand how they do democracy well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, similarly with France. Um, uh, or... You know, in the case of Montesquieu, of course, he looks at, at a lot of different uh, political, you know, regimes and institutions. Uh, in the case of Burke, again, one country uh, or two countries, France and England, which he, he 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 from which he extracts general lessons, but not general, but but you know, he, you know, there's this great, of course, famous passage I think in in the Reflections where he says, you know. I, you you can look to us english but i i'd i'd really rather you look to your own model in france look mm-hmm. to your own history look to your own culture it's not it's not the same as english institutions but you know since we have enough european common background there actually are some important similarities consultation on taxes and various of you know, the estates and so on so i guess what i think is you know works of political philosophy uh either like aristotle's politics my favorite textbook on politics you know, there he gives lots of specific examples. He also extracts from those examples general principles at a very high level of generality about mm-hmm. which he's always very explicit that, you know, you you just – you've got to figure out whether in your particular case the best thing that can be done is to make your local tyrant slightly less tyrannical right? Uh, or whether the best thing that can be done is to sort of, you know, shore up the middle class or maybe your elites are too weak. Maybe they need a, a larger voice. You know, it really just depends on – there's no set of institutions that he recommends uh, Always and everywhere, there's some general goals for politics, and some ideas about how to achieve those goals that are going to vary very much in practice. That's the big difference from what I called ideology, where I, because a lot of people have pushed me on this, like, what do you mean by ideology? I, by ideology, I think what I mean is somebody who takes political theory and from it deduces institutions that they think uh, in one in whatever version that, that have to be have to be put into place in any given country in order for that country's laws to be just. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where you know, I like popular votes on taxation. I think there are countries in which it wouldn't be a good idea. I like—I mean, name anything about the American system. I think it's in—in. In, I think our country is better, for example, for being able to permit religious freedom. The American version of religious freedom would not work uh, in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would not work in Iran. Uh, it would—that something more free than what they currently have would be good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but our First Amendment and our First Amendment jurisdiction leave out what I don't like about our First Amendment jurisprudence since the Warren Corps, but even just our, our pre-war and First Amendment jurisprudence. That's that's not going to work in an Islamic country. Mm. Some version, something, you know, again, I think there are more free and less free Islamic countries, but the relationship between religion and politics is just different enough uh, in Islam than it is in, in tolerant post-Enlightenment, mostly Protestant Christianity, which has been the majority religion in the U.S., that you're going to have somewhat different institutions mm-hmm. necessarily. And so... Um, how did I get onto this now? The the oh yeah the difference between ideology. So so what is the role for political philosophy? I think it gives us the I think it gives us the general goals. You know uh, freedom, prosperity, a human flourishing, fa- you know strong family life, um, reverence for the divine, you know, various things that are that are goods that are um, that are that our politics should assure. It gives us semi a range of ideas about how those what kind of institutions can implement those in practice. And then in a particular country, it can look at that country's history and culture and, and um, uh, founding documents and so on and, and articulate that – maybe that's the place for what you call, what you call political ideals is mm-hmm. our ideals are going to be American ideals. Because we're Americans, they're always going to be shot through with a certain universalism. That, that's part of what it means to be an American is to think that what we have is, uh, is good for humans anywhere where they're capable of it. Whether they're always capable of it, like next year, I think is a question that Americans sure. have rightly debated and, and I think more, you know, some of us, you know, many of us would say we've learned something about, it. certainly I've learned something about it since I was in college, um, which happened to be the time of the Iraq war. Um, but in any case, that, that that it would be better if the Iraqis could live in a country more like ours, I think. If you don't think that, you're just, you've, you've, you've sold out American principles and mm-hmm. I, do still, I do still think that. Um, but, you know, American ideals... Do they have to be articulated in terms of, of, of philosophical universals? Do they have to be in, articulated in terms borrowed from the second treatise? I'm very comfortable with saying um, religious freedom is an American ideal. Um, I'm very comfortable with saying freedom of speech is an American ideal that uh, frankly, you know, monogamous marriage is, a, is an American ideal that, that lots of societies uh, have not, have not uh, been particularly happy about. Uh, and you know various other things like this. Uh, the free enterprise is an American ideal. I'm in favor of all these things. I, maybe a big part of why I wrote the article is you can articulate these ideals, and different people will, will interpret them different ways, partly based on books of political philosophy that they've read. That because mm-hmm. you know no one's going to know what politician is going to come out and say I'm anti-free enterprise. Right. President well, Bernie, Bernie Sanders. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. Even he. Well, maybe maybe Bernie. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's rare. But, you know, the left has a very different idea of free enterprise than the right does. Mm-hmm. And I think that – I do think that the reading of political philosophy can and should inform how we interpret our, our nation's ideals. Because otherwise, we're just interpreting them blindly or through tradition or through what our parents told us or something like that. And that's, that's never enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think that conservatives are making – and I know plenty of conservatives that do this. I think they're making a mistake if they say – if they pick any version of liberal theory, whether it's Lockean or, or any others, and say, this is the lens through which we should interpret our American ideals. Mm. We should understand freedom of speech through whatever freedom of speech. By the way, is not even mentioned in the in the, in the second treatise, so that's right. probably jury, the word jury does not appear in the second treatise. You know, the very, there's, I don't, I don't think, I don't think the Lockean uh, or any other liberal theoretical reading of of our ideals is the correct ideals. I still like our ideals, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm I've, I've firmly committed to them. But I'm committed them to them for reasons that are more informed uh, by people like Cicero and Burke uh, mm-hmm. than they are like Locke. And and I would love to see more. Uh, more conservatives think about them in more of those terms.
0: Yeah. I mean, so one of the weird things which I mentioned in the book that I discovered was I always just assumed for most of my life that I shouldn't say most of my life. I didn't pay attention to a lot yeah, of these yeah. things till fairly late, but that the founding fathers were just all up in Locke, right? And they really loved Locke. And, you know, from life, liberty, and property to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it's that's sort of how they teach it in, in high
1: school. Yeah. And, and you referred to the scholarly debate on this as actually saying, uh,
0: Yeah, and then I found out that, like, yeah, the, a lot of the founder founders really like Locke, but they liked him for his, his scientific, what they call natural sciences right. or whatever, right? Yes, yeah, sir. The empiricism and, and all that kind of stuff. There's very little evidence that the founders read or particularly admired the Second Treatise on government. And it's one of these weird sort of branding things that Locke has been... Uh, Attributed to, this influence has been attributed to Locke that there's not a lot of evidence for, for his political writings rather than his scientific writings. And it was the empiricism stuff that undid the divine right of kings and all of that, or at least was perceived to, and, but his political stuff just seems to sort of hung out there. And everybody quoted it on both sides of every issue. It was sort of, you know, like bumper sticker stuff. And so I, you know, I, I'm with you on all of that. Again, I use Locke as a as a stand-in for one philosophical point of view, which we attribute often to Locke, I'm totally open to your argument that it's somewhat erroneous. But it's sort of they're, they're competing traditions in the American political tradition uh, between individualism and community, and part of the reason why I use Locke and Rousseau is that those are actually competing impulses that run straight through the human heart. Right, that we are all a little bit individualistic we want to be recognized as as making an ineffable and unique contribution to society that is our own that we are me and nobody else and that i should be recognized and respected as as an individual we are captains of ourselves and then the rousseauian vision that we want to be part of a group we want to feel like we're part of something bigger than ourselves that we're all working together and i think these those two impulses are really hardwired into the human genetic code and they express themselves in different philosophical traditions all the time. And I've become much more of a Jonathan Haidt moral foundations theory guy and sees a lot of political theory as just an expression of these different facets of, the human, of human nature. Um, doesn't mean they're not important because I do think those ideas then create permission structures that are really important to how societies develop. But they're still working off that same foundation of human nature.
1: In a way, although I, I mean, I think... You know, Tim Carney, your colleague Tim Carney's book uh, has been the most recent to make this case. Obviously, he's not the first conservative to make this case that there's a, a, a deep kinship between at least certain forms of individualism and certain forms of collectivism. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. They, they need each other.
0: You can't have a rightly formed individual.
1: Oh, yeah. Who no, isn't
0: formed by a, the, a Burkean
1: little platoon of family or institutions. That I certainly agree with, but I, I meant in a different way. I meant that the, the wrong kind of collectivism.
0: Oh, sure, right. The, which which you've all mentioned in Fractured Republic uh, argues about in there as well, which is that this, the centralized government encourages a kind of malformed individualism. Where the the population is legible as individuals, but there's no civil society between the individual and the state.
1: And yeah. vice versa. The, 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 the more each individual conceives of himself – conceives of his society as existing to serve his own interests and his own rights rather than of himself as as, as owing obligations to them, the more uh, the the more the door – and I think you, I, if I remember right, you mentioned this in the book. There is no – there is nothing in Locke that makes clear how the term tyranny of the majority right. is even a conceivable term. This, right the greatest worry of Tocqueville, uh, for Locke, you know, once you add up all the individuals, the side with the more individuals on it wins. Right, and unless you have some sort of uh, unless you have some sort of sense of of us being under a, a a common obligation to something higher than ourselves. And the something higher than ourselves, I'm afraid, can't just be the law of nature that says I have the I have my own rights and I have to respect your rights as long as as long as right. my rights are that's that's not doing it. Trevor um, Burrus And that's I, really not it, actually in nature, by the way. <laughs> well, well that, well, that's, that's all I, well, that I, that'd be an interesting <laughs> conversation too. But but I just mean that that the the individualism which again, I mean I, I you know I, I don't I don't accept the argument made most eloquently by Patrick Tanine and others that that because some phrases for Locke, from Locke made their way into the Declaration of Independence. That there's somehow this virus in our political culture that it's it's faded. That we should all turn into these individualists. Right. But it's clear that individualism, uh, in in not in the Tocquevillian sense, but just in the in this in the sense of, of selfishness, basically, uh, is a problem in American society. It, it's clear that there we've always had certain American impulses in this direction, uh, and it's it's become worse. It's been made much worse by the breakdown of family and 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 churches and other you know and and for that matter bowling leagues and all these other things. And that I think you know when when people I, what you describe as the the Lockean and Rousseauian impulses, uh, I I mean in your in your descriptions of Locke and Rousseau in the book, I I see in the in the real Locke and Rousseau I see more in common that in their political theories than I think your your separation of them uh, gives credit to. And the reason I think that's relevant is, again, I think that Lockean individualism very easily bleeds into precisely the kind of Statist collectivism. Yeah, no, that's a, good
0: that's a fair. That's uh, fair. I mean, yeah. the, the 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 general will and Locke's conception of majority sovereignty pretty similar when you
1: get down to. That's it. what I think about Locke. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah.
0: No, that's 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 fair. That's fair. I'm going with the the Billboard version. Of yeah, that's fine. Billboard version. I hope I'm of clear on that. In the thing, I used to think that these were much more. I think in my first book, I made it sound like they were. These are much more hard categories. and I think I got that wrong. Um, but I'm. I'm growing. Um, and I'm, I'm not growing just literally. I'm not just figuratively, but also literally. Um, and that's in part because I like to eat. And when I like to eat, I like to use DoorDash. Okay, so it's funny. When I was in Europe, uh, in Spain, about 10 days ago, uh, my wife and I uh, were walking around Zaragoza. And we saw all over the place these guys on scooters delivering uh, everything from, like, Dominoes to Burger King and and fancy food and all of the rest, and uh, it's apparently a dominant. It's a big thing in in Europe now too, and uh, and that's why when we use DoorDash and we use DoorDash quite a bit, I'll often say to my, my, my wife, we're so European. Anyway, DoorDash by now you should probably know connects you to your favorite restaurants in your city in your city. Ordering is easy; just open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat and your food will be delivered to you wherever you are. Not only is your favorite pizza joint already on DoorDash, but there are over 340,000 restaurants in 3,300 cities, so you might just find a new favorite, too. With door-to-door delivery in all 50 states and Canada, order from your local go-to's or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, and the Cheesecake Factory. Don't worry about dinner. Let dinner come to you with DoorDash. So right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code REMNANT. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter promo code REMNANT. R-E-M-N-A-N-T. Don't forget, that's promo code REMNANT. For $5 off your first order from DoorDash. All right, so this actually is a perfect segue for the the 12 listeners we have who are still listening, hanging on here. Um, I love this kind of stuff, so I, I have no regrets. But Me too, if you can't tell. Um, so we wanted to make this a current commander-in-chief free zone, so I'm not going to mention the guy's name. And this isn't about the merits of any of that stuff. But one of the things that I find, it hit me like a weird epiphany the other day. Um, there are these arguments about whether the president should be impeached or not. Again, we're not going to get into the substance of any of that. But there's the, the rhetoric around it. I kind of thought was fascinating. In insofar as you have all of these people saying the democratically elected president, the democratically elected president, the votes of 60 million people will be negated. Yada yada yada. Um, what's interesting to me about that is forget the fact that it's not a coup and all these other things if you're following the rules that are in the constitution, but the current president didn't win the popular vote, right? Right. Um, And I don't care. I mean, I truly don't care. I like the electoral college. And if it has results that bother people, uh, so be it, right? Um, uh, there are lots of presidents who didn't win 51% of the popular vote, including people like Abraham Lincoln that we kind of thought was a good president.
1: Bill Clinton got 40? 40. 43, I think. In was 92? It was, in, was it 40? The Perot year? Maybe it was 43. It was It was in the 40s. Yeah, uh,
0: it was definitely in the 40s. It was definitely less than 50. And But anyway, so what I think is sort of fascinating, and I may be the only person in the country who does, is that we literally don't have a language in our culture to say like you could say the legitimately elected president yeah, yeah, but that sounds like you're being insecure about the
1: fact that they didn't win the vote, right? Yeah, that's right. You're we don't have the, you know, and so it's like- If you say constitutionally elected president, everyone thinks it's too many syllables and isn't even sure what you're and saying. And
0: why are you using, it would call attention to the fact that you're not using- It's not democratic. That you're right. not using the right. word democratic. And it's it sort of touches on this thing where you you hear it all the time. I mean, it's like it's it's one of the top fifty comment section like.
1: Well, you read the comment section?
0: I haven't in years, but it's one of these you know owning somebody in a debate by saying we do not live in a democracy; we live in a democratic republic, and people think that that's like a showstopper of a point. The implication being that that we're not a pure democracy, which we're not, and that the The suggestion is is that we're in a republic and republic means all that stuff like the electoral college and federalism and all of these things, the Bill of Rights, which are not democratic, love all that stuff. But that's actually not what republic meant back in – Adam White was making this point to me that – when the founders used the word republic, back then, republic meant more democratic than what we currently have. It was more democratic than monarchy. It was a moving towards democracy. It wasn't moving towards this sort of weird representative but not democratic conception, right? Although they
1: did – well, in Federalist, I think it's 10, unless it's 9. I'm pretty sure it's 10 where they, they do explicitly say uh, in, a, in, a, in a pure democracy – that what we're talking about wouldn't work. No, that's absolutely right. You know, that that that's we have right. a republic, which right. is Not which, so you know, Republicans were certainly were, were men opposed to monarchy for the most part. But but the, the thing that they were rooting for was they didn't want Athens.
0: No, that's right. But so I guess my my point though is is like the republic, the the you know the, the founding fathers were were in some ways more scared of of mass democracy stuff than they were of. Of elites, elites, right? Um, um, a rule by representative elites, right. right? They wanted some measure of democracy in the soup, but yeah. not. But too much would spoil it, right? There you go. But we now do not have. I, mean, I was talking before about the power of rhetoric and the importance of rhetoric. Yeah, it really kind of bums me out that we don't have a positive language of adjectives to describe the point that you would want to make about a president who didn't win the popular vote but won the electoral college and that yeah. that that confers as much moral authority and legitimacy as simply winning more votes than somebody else but the only way we talk about elections and democracy in this country is is that somehow it's a very to me it's a very german thing is like the the Volksgemeinschaft yeah. crap, right? The second we have a critical mass of a, of 50 plus one people that somehow...
1: Well, yeah, you, weren't, weren't you the one that back back when I was in college? I quoted all the time to my students. I hope it's you that I'm quoting because I say it is that democracy is just a, a system by which 50 plus 1% of people can pee in the cornflakes of... That's me. Yeah,
0: that's yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, and so, like, I like... The, I mean, my favorite parts of the Constitution aren't, like, the how you would allot winners of elections. It's the Bill of Rights stuff, right? Yeah. Is a, that even if the entire country tries to vote away your First Amendment rights, it can't unless it does a
1: lot of work. Well, right, but the, right. The, isn't that always the, the assumption is that that that? I mean, we believe that we believe that technically, if a super super majority wanted to re- repeal the Bill of Rights, we guess they technically kind of could, right? but we don't think that a supermajority of americans would because we we really do believe that there's we we think it's perfectly possible that a, a particular election could bring in a particular set of representatives that could try to do something very stupid and bad in a particular mood but we have this confidence that within a certain number of years they would, like they would calm, things would calm down right. people would be glad of, of that that the the judges stopped it from happening or or the, or the president or whatever however it worked because ultimately we i mean we do we don't have some sort of extra popular check on the ability to amend the constitution. And so we have this sort of deeply democratic uh, groundwork laid on which we have all sorts of, of you know, elite institutions and, and in some cases maybe even overly elite institutions but, you know, that, that, that in other ways valuable elite institutions that—in that other words, I just mean that to some extent there's there's no way around the fact. That we do actually want the American people—that is, the mass, the, the majority, the, the great majority—not just the fifty-one percent, but you know, the, the eighty, ninety percent—the um, common sense of the American people—to be ultimately in the driver's seat.
0: Yeah, but I mean, that's that's, but that's the part of that. That's also the part of the parts of the Constitution that I like. Is I have no problem with the idea that the, a majority of the American people can amend or change the Constitution. They should be able to do that. It should be hard. Yes, very right? hard. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it should be hard for a whole bunch of reasons. It should be hard because you'll get better arguments, yep. right, in a very Burkean sense. If, you, if, if, if it's difficult, the amount of work you have to put in to persuade people yep. is greater. And so the key ingredient there is popular sovereignty over time, yes. right? And that's a sort of a statesmanship kind of point, yeah. is that at any given moment... The idea that, that whatever a majority of the people are super passionate about in a moment, that's a terrible way to govern. Yes, it is. <laughs> I remember uh, Dick Morris wrote a book that was one of the first books I reviewed for National Review called Voter.com. And the idea was this is early, very early days of the internet. What is this? Online voting? Not just online voting for politicians, which is a terrible idea. Yes, it is. But plebiscitory democracy, where most legislation is like decided Basically. by people who are like home dorking around on their computer, and it went nowhere, yep. you know. But every now and then, these ideas sort yep. of pop up that somehow it's like the like the idea of lowering the voting age to sixteen or twelve or whatever, <laughs> um, which they keep trying to do out in California. I think is insane. Yep. So, what do you think of? Um, on our, I had a, we had a special half-baked ideas episode with Congressman Mike Gallagher. It was uh, one of our most popular episodes, well, and know. and one of the the whole idea was to come up with things that were slightly outside the Overton window, yeah. but kind of cool to think about, right? Um, like that series of columns
1: doubt that did after the
0: election. Yeah, yeah. and um, and so one idea, which apparently has been out there for a while, which I, I, I kind of hit me as new, was to actually give every American the right to vote at birth, but parents yeah, hold it by be... by proxy yeah. until they're 18. And you if you start playing with it in your head, you get all these knock-on benefits about pronatalism and yeah, about yeah. the strength of the families and whatnot. What do you think of that?
1: I think it's a lovely idea as a father of four, but I um I mean, I, I can't imagine. I don't think it's constant. It would require a constitutional amendment. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. You mean you mean, can I imagine there being political will for the constitutional amendment in a country average no, averages one point seven uh children per
0: as a matter of, well go with it any way you want, but my my question i mean like would there be what would be the negative unintended consequences of something like it or i mean I agree no way you do it without a constitutional amendment okay um uh
1: I guess I think. If I could imagine a a, a U.S. in which there was the political will, because, I mean, there's other constitutional amendments I would rather pass before that one. Uh Um, But if if I can imagine a country in which there was a political will for that, I do like the idea. I haven't thought it through enough to think of what the big unintended consequences would be. But, I I mean, in general, I just think it's a good idea of a somewhat outlandish version of the kind of policy thinking that I actually think is most needed right now. Um, uh, And that's the kind of policy thinking where you say, look, we have these institutions that were designed with certain presuppositions about how our society functioned and our society has changed since then. So our solution is not to say th- these institutions were designed by a bunch of, you know, stupid old white guys that didn't know anything about equality and we should just rip them up and replace them with whatever we whatever we feel like. But the solution is to say things like, look, you know, welfare is, an, is, a, is a clear case. Welfare was designed with the assumption that uh, a woman receiving welfare—and as I understand, this is how it used to be done. That, like, she would get knocks on the door from the the city or whoever. And if there was an adult man in the house at the time, she would lose her welfare benefits. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying we should return to that. I mean, th- th- that's not our culture anymore. There's nothing at all like that. But we need to think about that. That means that you didn't have to worry so much about marriage penalties because people people's like – obviously, there's always some marriage penalty in the welfare system. But people's natural desire to couple off would, would mm-hmm. strongly push back against that. And right. Whereas now, people can couple off and still keep their welfare benefits as long as mm-hmm. they don't legally tie the knot. Um, th- that's a huge bug in the system. The system was designed with cultural presuppositions. The cultural presuppositions aren't there anymore. How can we now reform the system? Well, it's a hard policy pro- uh, problem, but I'm pretty sure we could do something other than what we're currently doing. Yeah, um, And I've heard some interesting ideas about that. So this is a, a more extreme version of that. But there, again, I think there w- our, our institutions were designed with the assumption that uh, Americans are... Care a lot about their kids and their grandkids, mm-hmm. you know. Like, I mean, there was a th- the argument was publicly floated during Brexit. That you know, since older voters were were mainly uh, leavers and younger voters tended to be more remainers. Younger there were I saw younger people. I don't know if they were writing articles or being interviewed or what, saying it's not fair. These old people are going to be dead soon, anyways. They're not gonna They're not gonna be the ones that have to live with the consequences of Brexit. Right? Maybe they shouldn't even be allowed to vote on it, or their yeah. votes should somehow account for more or something. So, I mean, this is this is ludicrous, but it shows that. There's something of a. There's been at least an erosion of the assumption that almost everybody has kids. Almost everybody plans to have grandkids. Almost everybody plans to have a handful of kids, and maybe some of them die in infancy. I know a hundred years ago, but the the default assumption is, with always exceptions and outliers and so on, people care about them and therefore have their own offspring in mind. when they think about the welfare of the, of the country, and therefore they're not willing, for example, uh, to just sell out the interests of their of their kids and their grandkids politically to make sure that their retirement benefits stay high, because right. ultimately what matters more is is their own retirement rather than. So there's this sort of built in natural human tendency to sacrifice for your kids and grandkids that was presupposed in how we ran our politics, and that's obviously, as I say, eroded. To what extent it has, it's still there to some extent. It's not there to the extent that it was before. I do absolutely think we have to think about creative ways to. Tinker with our institutions in some cases redesign them, so as to so as to, you know, put more pressure on the on the on, on the side of things that that were once taken for granted that no longer can be. You know, the same the same is true with. Uh, the same is true with marriage. The assumption of you know we've got a totally different culture about marriage and divorce than we used to. You didn't used to have to think about things like marriage penalties in the tax code to the same degree. I talked about welfare, but you know taxes. Like a hundred years ago, nobody had to worry about whether people were like w- what the tax benefits were or not of marriage. There was so much social pressure to get married. Right. Well, now that social pressure has lessened, we have to think more about the, ta- the tax structure because because mari- because people getting married on the whole in general is better than people not getting married, and so. So too with kids, you know, if if Domainy voting, if if that's pronouncing it right, would um, give more of a preference in our politics to people who are thinking, again, the way that good citizens have to think, which is about the future of the country beyond their own lifetime in terms that they're viscerally tied to. Because as much as it's nice to think about our own country in 100 years, everybody primarily thinks about their own kids in in 50 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so... You know, an acknowledgement that that we sh- that our politics should be weighted in favor of that kind of responsibility and future oriented thinking. I like the idea. I don't think it will go anywhere, but if we can come up with more with sort of more micro ways of of achieving the same goals, I like the idea very much.
0: Yeah, and also, I, I what do would. You think of it? Well, I, I personally would not mind living under the rule of the Mormon dynasty, <laughs> <laughs> um, and. Uh, uh, I, I, I I think it's an intri- intriguing idea because it captures on the fundamental asymmetry problems that we have in, in the culture in that we're not rewarding family formation enough. And I like that it turns it. It takes an idea of what I call voting voluptuaries and flips it on its head. Right. And. Um, uh, because I mean, my view on voting—I've now written this column fifty times. Uh, because someone will always propose. You can always count on somebody coming up with some stupid idea about mandatory voting or expanding voting. And I've changed my views a little bit on this kind of stuff. But um, um, people think that voting is the minimal requirement of citizenship, and I think that that gets exactly wrong. I think. Voting is the should be closer to the end of the process of citizenship, um, which is one of the reasons why when I first started getting on this, it was because people like Dick Morris and Jesse Jackson Jr. were proposing online voting. And I was like, by what theory of the case will this country be improved if the people who are at home playing like Call of Duty or World of Warcraft or watching daytime Judge Judy who can't be bothered to go to a polling station but if it only if you can do it during a commercial break of reruns of Baywatch it's yeah. worth voting at. Why does that make it the conversation in this country better, right? I mean
1: um it, I, would, do, it would do to our voting what what Twitter uh, has already done to our political discourse. Right, no, exactly. And 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 take so take it out of take it out of your pocket and bang out some stupid little thing in in t- 5 seconds.
0: So I think that that voting I, it, it, there, there are historical and cultural reasons why you can't have things like tests, you know, right. um, and I get that. Um, but in the abstract.
1: yeah, no, that's right. Uh,
0: I have no first order principled political theory type objection to the idea that native born Americans should pass the same citizenship test that immigrants do if they want to vote.
1: I I I'm completely in favor of that. I actually I had an idea a couple years ago that we should we should at least require all of our college graduates to take the citizenship test and then have the colleges publish publicize the results. That would be great. It's a nice idea. Then I looked at the citizenship test. It's actually pretty easy, and I think most it's college a, graduates would not have a.
0: It's amazingly easy. Um,
1: but if you look at the national polling on well, what American people don't know, I think i think especially as a way of, of i mean again along those lines, something needs to be done to make it clear to our colleges and to their graduates that we consider that kind of an education a privilege we subsidize it very heavily. they have obligations to their society, the colleges need to be educating for citizenship and for civic leadership specifically not not just voting but more than voting no, I agree then like
0: the 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 liberal and liberal arts is supposed to be inculcating in people those things they need to know to be responsible citizens. Absolutely. And they, we've completely lost track of that. Instead, Except, we teach people to hate the country. You know? Not at
1: the University of Dallas. Not
0: I'm at the... There are, there are a handful of places that don't do that. Um, but the list is much longer on the other side of the Unfortunately, page. Unfortunately, it is. Yeah. Right. Um, all, right. so all your listeners should send their kids to UD. UD, which has never invited me to come speak, which, you know... We'll
1: get on that as soon as I get back. I'm, I'm, it's
0: okay. It's fine. We uh, um,
1: were so, talking about... about uh, about uh, voting
0: and yeah, no, but so you mentioned, um, oh, so yeah, on the voting thing, real, real quickly, um, one of the reasons why I'm starting to like slightly change my mind about the voting thing is I've become much more interested, and we got to start doing some podcasts on here about urban zoning and all this kind of stuff. And I yeah. know Shoshana is now going to freak out that I said that on it on the podcast, but um, uh, there's some really interesting political science that. There are all sorts of um, groups, progressive groups, that are very much against high voter turnout. And mm-hmm. the example that I remember, I wrote a, a column about this years ago um, teachers' unions, right? So if you have election day
1: and only the teachers unions members come out and vote
0: yeah and their families right so if it's incredibly low voter turnout the teachers union coalition is decisive but in the larger population of the metropolitan new york they're a rounding error and so they tend to be sort of the gatekeepers institutional um, protector you know sort of a guild kind of thing my brother when he ran for city council in New York City, you know, on the one hand, elections are fully publicly financed in, in the city. In the city, oh. but oh, for for city council stuff, I don't. I, I assume mayor or not, but um, or maybe there's some weird rule that you can opt out because Bloomberg certainly didn't. Need yeah, 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 yeah. But but the thing is, is that my my brother learned is that the paperwork and compliance stuff is such a huge regulatory barrier that if you don't have your existing staff on the New York City council doing all of
2: it you can't even
0: you can't even get it right and so i'm i'm more and more in favor of smashing a lot of that stuff because i think a lot of our housing problems and the homeless problem and all of these things have to do with you know, various forms of nimbyism and and sort of guild protection of
1: perks and whatnot. Check out the latest report from JC, by the way. I, on? Where I worked until recently, on housing, on the connection between... Um, I should. On uh, the connection between uh, zoning on the one hand. Zoned out is, the, is uh-huh. the wonderful title of zoning on the one hand and um, school districts on the other. How we essentially have a private school system that we're calling a public school system. That's
0: interesting. Okay, I will check it out. Go ahead. Um, all right, so we got to close. Um, but you said earlier that the... It would that the the family vote thing would not be your first choice for
1: a constitutional amendment. What would be your first choice for a oh, constitutional boy. amendment? Well, first of all, on the family thing, I'd say if you want a, an actual manageable policy, I think at the local level, absolutely, I would change zoning to make it so that next to hand, right next to all the handicapped spots at every in every parking lot, there should be uh, families with young children spots. That's, That's a good idea. A, a I like simple that way of of showing of showing us. A little bit of respect, for yeah, yeah. It's very difficult to get them across parking lots, um, and very dangerous. I mean, it's it
0: extremely stressful taking little kids across a park, but
1: lot. also just showing that we yeah. that we we like having people with families come to this to this uh, I, to this establishment and to live in this town. So I on. bet you a bunch of
0: supermarkets in Chick Fil A's
1: could be persuaded to do something like that. In the South, some places, some supermarkets already have that. Is that right? But but not up here. It was a big it was a big switch coming from Texas to here. We discovered there was a lot less. Yeah, uh, there, I think even the Whole Foods in, in Dallas will have these sort of you know young family spots. Anyways. My first constitutional amendment. Oh boy, you're going to get me in trouble. Um I, I, I would I think the first priority for a constitutional amendment should be to um to make Supreme Court nominations less high stakes. Uh and, and how, w- how would that be phrased or written? Well, I would say uh on the right it's on the on the right it would have to be uh, an overturning of Roe. Uh-huh. And I think, in exchange, the left would have to get something equally big uh-huh. and I can imagine I'm you know maybe it would relate to campaign finance I don't know it would be something i w- I wouldn't like certainly, mm-hmm. but for the sake of the durability of our republic, I would be willing to concede something major uh I don't know that the left would ever ever accept an overturning of roe, but on mm-hmm. the other hand, if Trump were reelected and, and and appointed another another justice, they may get one. Uh, they may—it's—it's it's conceivable, uh, and so I think um, basically to to find the to find the biggest issue on each side where each side is most concerned that the other side's justices will overturn the democratic process, mm-hmm. and therefore to again and by overturn row, all I mean is of course throw it back to the states the way the conservatives have always been saying. So right. Therefore, it will be up to each state to figure this out, and uh, and so to you know if it were campaign finance or whatever else it would be it wouldn't it wouldn't. It wouldn't be public funding of elections. It would be throwing the regulation of it back to the states. It would. It would have to be a no portion of this constitution shall be construed to x or y. Yeah, I mean, I, I find that
0: these kinds of grand bargain kind of things are fun to think about. I, is there an example in American history where we've done that kind of gun it that way? I mean, uh, other than like the no, there isn't. Yeah, I mean, I, it's 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 to me it always sort of smacks of
1: if we can only just get superman to fight the hulk <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, because i don't i don't know how, i don't know the political Steps to get there, right? And
1: in general, I know a friend and recent colleague of mine at, at CUA, Justin Licki, is doing good work on this. According to him, I don't know this, but according to him, the compromise, the great compromises of the mid 19th century that we remember as if they were were sort of package deals, to the extent they worked, did not work as package deals. Yeah. That often even legislation and kind of the omnibus thing doesn't work as well, and it's better to... You, you get one coalition for this part of the compromise, then you get a different coalition for this kind of compromise. So. Everything I know about how politics actually works suggests that this is extremely unlikely to work. But I don't think that domainy voting has any any better a shot at yeah, no, that's Constitutional uh, amendment. I mean, uh,
0: the the the. I mean, the trade I don't think would be campaign finance. I think the only one that the left might go for is something really draconian on guns, and I don't see the right doing that. Um, but because um, it has to be something
1: that hurts. Deep on both sides. I thought about guns, but the thing about guns is, is just this: it's not. I mean, we've only just had Heller; we haven't yet seen where it's going to go. My suspicion is that even the conservative court will not strike down all that much gun control legislation for the simple reason that there's not that much gun control legislation that would pass. Uh, I could be wrong about this. Maybe I'm overly optimistic. I don't think there's that much that would pass um, that even a conservative justice would see as unconstitutional. Yeah, because I just don't think that there's the political appetite for major gun control legislation. And I don't think that, you know I don't I don't I don't support mandatory background checks. Um, mm-hmm. but I I'm not I'm not convinced that it would be against the Second Amendment if we had mandatory background checks. Yeah. I just think it'd be bad policy. So um
0: I will close this out by just saying that I too am in favor of diminishing the drama and the stakes of Supreme Court stuff in this country. And I think the way you do that is by actually having Congress do its job. Well um, Amen. Because the whole reason why Supreme Court fights are so intense is that we've turned it into a third legislature that has superiority to the other t- other legislature, other partly. branches.
1: Partly. Although, although I remember uh, Ramesh, your colleague, uh, wrote I think this critique of when when Sass said something like that on the floor a year or two ago, Ramesh yeah. was like, yeah, partly, but partly it's also just – issues like abortion that people care an awful lot about. And it's not the case that, that if Congress are doing its job on abortion, we wouldn't care about Roe. Uh, and, so my, and and that's why I've tried to focus in on issues where the concern is is not this, the court acting as a super legislator, super legislature, but the court actually overturning the democratic process. Which, no, that's again, fair. That's fair. It's sometimes. a twofold problem with the court. That's
0: absolutely right. It short-circuited what was shaping up to be a from a bottom-up national compromise yes, that, exactly. that what I think is sort of fascinating is it's sort of like irritating the oyster to get the pearl. <laughs> I don't know that you have anything like the pro-life movement you have today if you'd still have people who are passionate pro-lifers, but it wouldn't be this national organization, this incredible right. commitment if it had simply bubbled up organically and, and
1: federally, not just nationally,
0: right. Right. And, you know, in state by state patchwork, whatever. And there'd be some places that 30 years later still don't allow abortions and all the rest. Fine by me. But um, uh, if it had happened that way, I mean, this is the Ruth Bader Ginsburg point is that it it, it, by short circuiting the process, it screwed a lot of stuff up. And it's it's fun or interesting to think about what other passionate ideological positions do the left and the right hold that they wouldn't hold if the system had been working properly. (laughs) And that's probably the subject for another podcast. But um, Dan, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's been a blast.
0: And uh, I'm sure we'll have you back, unless there's just this wild populist outrage (laughs) about something that you said that I'm unaware of. But anyway, thank you very much. Thanks, again. Okay, so Daniel Burns has left the building. I for one enjoyed that quite a bit. It was nice to get back to the uh the early days of the Remnant where it was just political theory geek out stuff. And um, I had truly no idea that we were gonna be talking about my book, which you know, I would be great if everybody could read, but I really would rather just everybody buy it. But um anyway, I enjoyed that. I'll be interested to see what the comments are on this one. Jack, what did you think?
3: I wanna talk about I wanna dwell on something that was only briefly discussed. Well uh, away. The economic success, so-called, of the Soviet Union, uh-huh. Uh this is often, people, somehow there are still communist apologists, uh, apologists out there, and they cite this, along with the Soviet Union's victory over, or kind of contribution to victory over the Axis powers in World War II, as great examples of things the Soviet Union did, which, like, great for the for the latter. Yeah, like good job ha- killing all of your people or like good job having a surplus population to send to their deaths. Right. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> and and good good job living in one of the m- most inhospitable climates in the world. Uh way to go. Uh as for the first. This is something uh Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes about and Actually, that you can sort of find evidence for as well outside of him. The before this before the uh, revolution of nineteen the October nineteen seventeen revolution, Tsarist Russia was start with like for the past hundred or so years. Not again, not starting from a from a great base, but Tsarist Russia had some of the best growth rates in Europe. It was starting to sort of take off, and politically, it was starting to liberalize. Again, they still had a czar, um, but like the sort of embryonic forms of political institutions were beginning to to germinate. Um, the it, it, there were secret police in czarist Russia, but they were nothing like what sure. what evolved in 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 to Soviet in, in Soviet Russia. There were political. There were like I guess you could say labor camps in czarist Russia, but they were again nothing like the Gulag. And like Solzhenitsyn spends a lot of time saying that these are differences of uh, kind, not of degree. Mm-hmm. Like they're they're not even comparable things, and that we'll never really know what Russia, absent the Soviet imposition, would have been. Uh, but it, I mean, even even as when when uh, Tocqueville was writing about, he made a political prediction. I can't remember at some point in the middle of the nineteenth century that. America and Russia were going to be the preeminent powers of twentieth century, right. uh, the twentieth century world. And this is not this is when uh, communism was barely even. I don't know. I don't know if it, it had even been properly formulated or not yet. But there was no way that anyone could have predicted that the Soviet Union would exist. So this, there was reason to believe that Russia was going to become a prosperous nation. Before the Soviet Union happened, so I don't know. This just was briefly discussed, and I just want to rant about this because I hate communists. <laughs> yeah, no.
0: Um, I mean, there, there. Excuse me. There are two points there. One is um, that you're absolutely right. Look, that 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 forced industrialization. My point. My let me put it this way. My point was that forced industrialization yielded. Big gains in productivity because when you replace a donkey cart with, you know, uh, earth-moving equipment, you're going to get gains in productivity. And the price for doing that was <laughs> killing lots of their <laughs> own people. Right. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I don't think it was. It, I don't think it was a morally acceptable bargain that they made. Um, and it was amazing how so many intellectuals in the West saw the, all of that stuff as the, the the necessary egg breaking to make an omelet. Um where's the omelet? No, exactly. Um, but the other point is is that like I I think you're right. I mean I, I the the problem that conservatives get in, often get into is by wanting to say how much how bad things like communism are, they fall into the trap of saying what predated it in these countries wasn't bad at all. And I think Tsarist Russia was bad. Um, the Goldbergs wouldn't be here if it wasn't bad. Um, but, you know, it's like my dad always used to make the point that he was always, you know, he was always on the – he was always more sympathetic to the Shah of Iran because one of the reasons why the Shah of Iran got overthrown was that he was a liberalizer. I mean, he was a corrupt, cruel guy, but he was also giving women – allowing women to go to schools and he was trying to modernize the economy and all of that. And the Iranian revolution, which you know, which overthrew him, was reacting to all that stuff and was far worse than what it replaced. Um, and the same thing goes with the Bolsheviks. You can point to the corruption of the Tsarist regime and you can say how it was flawed and and, and tyrannical and all the rest, but what replaced it was infinitely worse. And this sort of gets to the old, since we're in AEI, the old Gene Kirkpatrick dictatorships and double standards argument is that... You know, dictators are bad, but they're um, because they don't have any overarching totalitarian philosophy that keeps their vision of the state in place forever. They're much more easy to depose and they tend to leave a lot of civil society alone. Totalitarianisms, meanwhile, are far worse, they're far crueler. You know, if you were a Jew, you would much rather have lived under Franco than um, under Hitler. Um, If you were, uh, you know, the the old style dictatorships were basically like the old man wants to stay in power. He wants to get rich. He wants to take care of his cronies. But other than that, everyone gets to live their lives for the most part. Um, It's corrupt. It's a police state often, but it's not anything like what you had under... Stalin or Pol Pot or Mao Zedong, where every nook and cranny of life is policed for ideological consistency. Anyway, I, I think you make a perfectly fine point on that. Um, um, did you know that, that this thing about giving kids the vote from birth was called dominion voting? Demeny. Demony?
3: Demeny voting. I couldn't understand what he was saying. What, what is it? Spell it for it, me. D-M-E-N-Y. It refers to a person whose first name I don't remember but he's the he's the inventor of the idea or at least the codifier of it. I'm I'm sure it's been thought of before he sort of formalized it. Huh. I think the person who invented it is still alive, like some kind of political scientist or or authored it, right? And it doesn't
0: exist as a thing anywhere. I mean invented is just uh, it feels like the wrong word for it, but maybe
3: not. I don't know. Yeah, that's why I said codified. Okay. Um but yeah, that's that's why. That's what that's the term um, used for it
0: have uh switching gears entirely. Have you watched any of Man in the High Castle?
3: Uh, no, I've not. All right, well, they don't have Demney voting in that, I assume. <laughs> uh, no, no. Um, though if they were going to have voting, they might for the
0: master race. <laughs> uh, but they they they, they don't. Um, uh, why did you bring it up? Because I'm almost done with it, and I think it's it's taken a very I haven't decided yet interesting turn. Um, uh, I'm recording a glop shortly, so maybe we'll talk about it there. But I have a feeling that like 18 months ago, large swaths of Hollywood decided that they had to bend their cultural wares to the writings of Todd and Coates because there's that's. I mean, I listened to an interview with Damon Lindelof where he basically said that's what is driving the entire narrative arc of The Watchmen or of Watchmen on HBO and there seems to be some of that on, um, uh, man in the high castle for the final season as well. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, all right. So, uh, what else is there to talk about? Not much. Thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, please let us know what you thought of this episode. Please follow us on Twitter at Jonah remnant, um, on Twitter, and uh, go to dispatch.com to sign up for uh, newsletters and all the rest, uh, counting down to the real launch of the thing in January. Um, and uh, at some point, we should talk more about all the alt-right buffoonery and all that stuff of the last week, and maybe on the next episode we'll get into some of that. But until then, thanks, everybody, for listening, and I'll see you next time.
3: Live long and prosper. And I'm gonna need you to have that mic close to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah
0: either you closer to it or it closer to you.
1: You can whatever's comfortable for you. How is is this close enough? Yep. Yeah. Great. And you'll what what gesture will you make of me if I need to if I need to come closer?
3: <laughs> you don't want to see
2: it. <laughs> <laughs>